0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom
1: of The Washington Post.
0: Hi, this is Ben Terrace, coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff.
2: This went free, Oprah. Hi there. How are you?
1: It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 17th. Today, President Trump's mixed messages on Iran, how China may be censoring TikTok, and why Antony from Queer Eye is done with guacamole. Catch us up to speed on what happened in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. <laughs> —
3: Over the weekend, two different sites that are part of the large Saudi oil production and distribution network were struck by what has been described as flying projectiles. That's Anne Gearin. I cover the White House with a focus on foreign policy. There are a couple of different theories about exactly what those projectiles are. The leading theory at the moment is that it was a mix of drones and missiles.
1: It was the most serious attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure in decades, and it had an immediate effect on oil prices around the world.
3: These two facilities, which are part of the Saudi Aramco, which is the state-owned oil enterprise, these two facilities together are the largest in Saudi Arabia, and the damage to them, Saudi Arabia estimates, has cut production by 50 percent, and Of course, the big question then is who fired them. So after the attack, who claimed responsibility for it? Very quickly after the attack, the Houthi rebels in next-door Yemen claimed responsibility. This is an Iranian-backed militia movement, rebel movement in Yemen that is fighting the Saudis there. The claim of Houthi responsibility was almost immediately then disputed by the Saudis, who blamed Iran— And at first, the United States didn't assign blame, but then not too long after the attacks, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did assign blame in a tweet without offering evidence saying that Iran was behind it. In the days since, U.S. intelligence has been working with the Saudis and making its own assessments and trying to determine who did this. The working assumption among U.S. officials is that Iran was behind it, but the United States has not yet made a 100 percent determination.
4: Have you seen evidence proof that Iran was behind the attack? Well, it's looking that way. We'll have some pretty good, uh, uh, we're having some very strong studies done, but it's certainly looking that way at this moment, and uh, we'll let you know. As soon as we find out definitively, we'll let you know, but it does look that way.
1: I'm curious why the Houthi rebels in Yemen would want to take responsibility for an attack that they might not have been responsible for. Are they trying to protect Iran and protect this country that is giving them a lot of backing? Or is it politically advantageous to them to look like they could be capable of this kind of attack?
3: Uh, I think it's the latter. And it's also, you know, it's free advertising. Like, How many Americans had heard of the Houthis last week, right? Not as many as I've heard of them this week, so it completely works for them. In Yemen, they have seized power in in parts of Yemen from the U.S.-recognized government, again with Iranian backing. And the U.S. is weighed in on, on that fight and is trying to, in many ways, help the Saudis. So the Houthis have their own political agenda in Yemen, which involves going after the Saudis where they can go after them. The immediate suspicion that they couldn't have done this, though, is that these were attacks far inside Saudi Arabia that used sophisticated weaponry. There's also a question of the direction that the projectiles appear to have come from, which is not Yemen.
1: So your sense is that this is not a situation we're just trusting what Saudi Arabia is telling them?
3: I don't think so. At the same time as Saudi Arabia has the best intelligence services in the Middle East, and they are very closely linked with American intelligence services, the U.S. is getting some firsthand information. There are military inspectors on the ground looking at the stuff that was left over at the sites that were blown up to make their own determinations. And then, of course, the U.S. has its own assets that it can rely on. We have satellites. We have spy planes. We have all kinds of other things that are moving around in the Middle East from which we can get our own assessment that is separate from the Saudis. So if the U.S. is operating from the
1: assumption that Iran is behind these attacks, how have
3: we seen President Trump respond to that? Well, Martin, that is the question. So the president is trying to have it both ways, and he will probably continue to do so for a little
4: bit. Do I want war? I don't want war with anybody. I'm somebody that would like not to have war. We have the strongest military in the world. We've spent more than a trillion and a half dollars in the last short period of time on our military. Nobody's even come close. We have the best equipment in the world. We have the best missiles. And as you say, you just bought the Patriot system. There's nothing even close. Uh, But uh, no, I don't want war with anybody, but we're prepared more than anybody.
3: Yesterday, the Bahrainis were in town, and Bahrain is smack in the middle of all of this. They're next door to Iran and are a trading partner and in many ways have a long diplomatic and neighborly relationship with their fellow Shiite nation. At the same time, they are beholden to the Saudis. They are part of the Persian Gulf. And what they wanted to hear from the president was a firmer discussion of what was going to happen next, assign blame if need be, and and make a commitment to the region. Instead, I think what you heard from the president was saying it was most likely that Iran was behind it, but that he wasn't quite ready to say that fully, that he wanted to investigate further. He's sending Mike Pompeo to Saudi Arabia as part of that investigation. That's a way to push this out a little bit farther. And he said that he would prefer not to have U.S. military involvement if it can be avoided. Which in and
1: of itself is interesting because directly after the attack, President Trump had tweeted that the U.S. was locked and loaded, kind of giving an an indication of wanting to see some military retaliation. But as you're describing, he kind of very quickly took a much more
3: moderated, wary approach. Yeah, he's got competing instincts here. At the same time as the president wants very much to confront a tough adversary with greater toughness and and you see that playing out in the in language like locked and loaded the president also very much wants to negotiate with Iran and he wants to be able to draw the Iranians to the table to make a new deal that would replace the 2015 nuclear deal that he walked out of the president has you know from the time that he was a candidate complained that that deal was a bad one for the United States too weak had a million loopholes and he wants to make a better one. That would be the Trump deal. To do that, you have to get the Iranians to want to talk to you. And, you know, threatening to blow things up is not probably the way to get them to want to talk to you. And
1: I think that there are a lot of different ways in which President Trump is dealing with these competing interests, because as you're saying, you know, you have this desire to meet force with force, competing against his desire to negotiate with Iran, but also President Trump's long-held America first approach, that he doesn't want us to get involved in military conflicts
3: in other parts of the world that don't necessarily benefit the U.S. That's right. The president is facing re-election next year, and he— has not been able to fulfill the campaign promises of 2016 to end U.S. involvement in what he called endless wars and bring U.S. forces home. At the very least, he would have liked to have been able to bring U.S. forces home from Afghanistan, and that looks unlikely to be able to happen before the election in 2020, at least in a very significant way. On that political calculation, the last thing the president wants is to start a new war in the Middle East. So what's going to happen next? (laughs) Well, the very first thing that, that happens, it looks like, is that Mike Pompeo will go to Saudi Arabia. He will meet with the crown prince and others in Saudi Arabia and come back with a firmer determination of culpability and some suggestions and recommendations for what the president would do next. We do expect Pompeo to go very quickly, come back very quickly. And then if that all happens in the next several days, then we've got the U.N. General Assembly upon us next week where where Trump will be, along with a lot of world leaders. And we might get a determination before that or at the beginning of that of what the U.S. response will be.
1: Dan is a White House reporter for The Post, covering foreign policy and national security.
5: So on Twitter, when you search for something like hashtag Hong Kong...
1: Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Post.
5: You get all of these scenes of the protests... You see the unrest and the people on the streets. When you search the same things on TikTok, hashtag Hong Kong, you get something wildly different.
2: So my dad and I have just arrived at the hotel. What happened?
0: Hi Jamie. What? The hotel say I am not wolf. <laughs> yeah. It's
2: because we're, we're
0: the wrong hotel.
5: You get a lot of selfies and people eating and sort of tourist attractions. You don't see the protests that have shut down the city effectively and drawn out more than a million people to the streets. So why is that? I mean, that's the big question. What's happening here? That one social media reality looks totally different than the other.
1: So before we get there, we're talking about TikTok, which I understand that it is a social media app with videos and every time I come across a teenager, I'm like, are you on TikTok? Because I need to know more about this thing. But explain exactly what TikTok is
5: and how it works. So TikTok is beloved by the youngs and the teens. And it's a lot like a Vine, right, where it's like short videos and you share them.
1: And a lot of them are like really clever or there's some kind of like joke or
5: or meme that's happening. Yeah, and it all sort of started as these like sing-alongs where people would kind of karaoke into this other song. Dang, dang. So there's a huge sort of musical component to it. But there's this whole subculture where there are memes that sort of grow out and morph from different people. There are these sort of personal stories that people convey.
1: Story time, part one. Going into middle school, I had no friends. So I made friends with this one girl named Chloe in my PE
2: class.
5: There's these quick jokes. There's stuff like Old Town Road. There's this huge creative explosion of stuff that you see on TikTok that you don't really see anywhere else.
1: And TikTok has become incredibly popular internationally and has become one of the first kind of foreign social media platforms to really break through in the U.S. I mean, I remember earlier this year, TikTok was actually brought up during a congressional hearing.
5: Yeah, it's like... Uh, one of these things that is huge among kids and very few adults even know it exists, and that's very true for Capitol Hill, too, where the only reason it came up was because people were wondering if Facebook is the only social media monopoly out there, and it's really not. I mean, TikTok has become its own thing. It's one of the really rare social media success stories we've had in the last couple of years in this you know monopoly of Facebook and Twitter and it's also China's most successful social media export abroad almost all of the sites we use and social media sites we use in specifics are american made or western made so for us to have sort of a chinese made app do so well have a billion people using it across the world uh, that's something that's making people pay attention
1: but the fact that when you search hong kong on tiktok And you don't see anything about these protests that have brought hundreds of thousands
5: of people to the streets. Why is that happening? The first answer is that this might be censorship. The Chinese government and the Communist Party are extremely heavy-handed in the kinds of materials they allow online. China Web is its own thing compared to the rest of the world's internet. And so there are lots of ideas and historical moments and facts that we can all see and understand in in the Western world that are just not accepted and not tolerated online in China. So there's a possibility that the Chinese government is weighing heavily on these censors that work for TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, or maybe the censors are just being protective because they know this kind of material would not be tolerated by the Chinese government. And the Chinese government has all sorts of enforcement measures that they can use to bend a company to its will. So that's entirely possible. And from a lot of the researchers we talked to, they're worried because this happens online in China all the time. It would not be a new thing. If anything, it would be exceptional if TikTok and ByteDance, its parent company, weren't being pushed in this way by China.
1: I remember we had a conversation earlier this year about the Tiananmen Square massacre and hearing that in China, for young people there, many of them have never heard of Tiananmen Square because they can't really find anything about it on the internet.
5: Yeah, and that's still true today. I mean, there's this huge history that they're missing out on, but also this huge context about current events that they're they're also missing out on. So there's a Chinese version of TikTok that just sort of mainland China audiences see. That's definitely censored. That's Definitely has all those sort of propaganda and and Chinese great firewall features to it. But there's also sort of the Western TikTok that the company says is sort of uh, distinct from this Chinese influence and is run by an American team. And it's important to understand, too, that TikTok in China is not just like this fun singing, dancing thing. It is news and entertainment for millions of people.
1: So it's an important way of how they understand what's happening in the world. Yeah,
5: it is their portal to the rest of the world. And it's also a platform for a lot of propaganda that the government sees. It's a really powerful, unique way of spreading their ideology, spreading their ideas, and they've capitalized on it.
1: So did you ask, TikTok or their parent company, ByteDance, about this? Did you just ask them straight up, are you guys censoring images and videos from the Hong Kong protests?
5: Yeah, we talked to them a lot. And and our big question was, how are you separating yourself? How are you creating a firewall between Chinese censors and the rest of the world where those censors should not have uh, the power? And, you know, their response was, we have a U.S.-based team. We store data in the U.S. You know, the U.S. app should be its own satellite untouched by Chinese influence.
1: So they're saying clearly that it's not being censored, that just because this is a Chinese company doesn't mean that Chinese governmental censors are stopping images from coming out like in the U.S. or other parts of the world.
5: Yeah, that's right. And they argue that they are, their American side would not be influenced by the Chinese government at all. But the problem is they won't say how any of that is enforced. They say that they're not going to be influenced by the Chinese government, and yet their company is based in Beijing. There's a huge amount of Chinese interconnection with the company. And, you know, from all the researchers we talked to, they said... For a company like ByTance to push back against the Chinese government is just unheard of. They could not be allowed to exist in the way that they operate while also pushing back and, and keeping this resistance. It's strange belief, really, for a lot of these researchers to think of a totally separate entity that would still be run by a Chinese company. And yet um, they are— I mean, the company is just sort of asking us to trust them and trust that there isn't this undue influence on this app that, that a lot of people are using. And yet, um, you know, there's still a ton of questions we have and a ton of details that we haven't been able to fill out.
1: Even if you're not a TikTok user and you may or may not have heard about TikTok before today, why do you think this matters? Why do you think this is important for people around the world?
5: You know, I when we think about social media, it has always been this quintessential American product, and it's been based off of these really institutional American ideas about freedom of speech and creative expression and allowing people to say whatever they want, even if you disagree. Um, Those have shaped the internet in this really interesting and subtle way. And so to think about a product that comes out that lots of kids are using, expecting those same sorts of rules about free speech to be at play, and then to have the reality be that there are all sorts of politically inconvenient storylines that they're not seeing, Uh, that's scary. I mean, you know, the Internet is the way that people learn about the outside world. It shapes our politics. It shapes our culture. It shapes our ideas about ourselves. And so to think about an app that is being seen by kids as a, a reflection of reality be contorted in that way and be sort of manipulated to be censored and 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 made into a tool of propaganda. I think that's really scary just for the information diets of of not just kids but our whole society. What does it mean when the main information source that we're looking at is not really the full picture?
1: Drew Harwell covers technology for The Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
1: And now, one more thing.
0: So, I met up with
6: Antony Porowski, who is the food and wine expert on Queer Eye, the Netflix makeover show. Of course. So, tell me what you are doing.
2: So, we are making a cheesy lemon rosemary artichoke dip.
6: And he has a cookbook that came out, so we spent some time in his apartment, and he cooked cheese dip for me.
2: And this is a kind of the perfect little way to start a meal. When I kind of got a little bored of uh, of cheese platters, and I wanted to make something different but s- still use cheese.
6: I'm Laura Jedkis, and I cover culture and food for the Washington Post. One thing that people find surprising is that they know Anthony's recipes from Queer Eye. And he kind of has this reputation for doing like pretty simple recipes.
2: So I'm going to show you how to supreme. What I would suggest is assemble the grilled cheeses ahead of time. And then you just do a really thin bite. Now it's time to get down to booze. Do you know what sangria is? No.
6: And a lot of recipes with avocado.
2: I'm going to teach you how to make a guac from scratch.
6: You know it there was a sucks. lot of fuss about a guacamole recipe he did.
2: One thing I like to add to my guac I like things to be super creamy. I'm like a dairy freak. So this is tangy Greek yogurt.
6: But it seems like in this cookbook he's really trying to get away from that because there are not a lot of recipes from Queer Eye. There isn't even really that many references to Queer Eye and there really aren't a lot of avocados either. They only make one appearance in an Australian breakfast sandwich and it's not even really about the avocado. It's just an accessory.
2: I'm really sad to report and like breaking news, but I'm I'm not as obsessed with avocados as the world tends to think I am.
6: So for him, this cookbook is really more about where he comes from rather than what he is on the show.
2: Our upbringing, we like, we're, I was born in Montreal, my sisters were born in Poland, my parents are Polish immigrants. We lived in Montreal until we moved to West Virginia, where Mm -hmm. my sister stayed in Montreal. One of my sisters moved to Vancouver, where we had a place. Mm -hmm. And everyone was always sort of all over the place.
6: The immigrant experience is really part of the book, too.
2: Until people hear my name, or see it written out, or they hear my accent, because it's a little ambiguous and a little all over the place, like, I'm a white guy. I have benefited from a lot of the privilege that, that a lot of Americans have. I don't deal with a lot of the struggles that, that other people have experienced. But that said, like I did get bits of it. When I moved to West Virginia, mm-hmm. Like that was hard at one point. For the first time, it was like I never thought about my name.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: It was just my name, and it was the name that I was given, and I didn't give it too much effort. And then suddenly people wouldn't pronounce it well, and then they would laugh when they would pronounce it mm-hmm. and be like, well, why don't we just call you Anthony?
6: Mm-hmm. And I was like,
2: mm-hmm. well, that's not my name. Why would you call me that?
6: Mm-hmm.
2: That's when I sort of started to develop, like, a bit of a shame, and it was the same with the food as well. You know, my love-hate relationship with Polish cuisine, which, as a kid, I feel like I liked a lot of the things, and then I moved to West Virginia, and suddenly I'm like, you know, the immigrant kid bringing in weird cabbage stuff that was not Oscar Mayer Lunchables. Mm -hmm. Um, And suddenly I was like, weirdly had this like shame around my foreign name and this food that I brought in and then falling in love with it back again when I started working at a family-run Polish restaurant at Stash Cafe, where it was suddenly like, oh wow, this stuff is awesome.
6: He also feels strongly about the immigrant experience politically.
2: Almost all of the world's problems can be attributed to a lack in or a lack of understanding of diversity Mm
6: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: because when things are foreign to us we don't get them and then we're afraid there's this chance that you might be like intimidated by something or fearful and that's where like fear-mongering kind of kicks in but when you are exposed to different cultures when you understand like the different paths that people have taken to, to get to where they are and, and where they come from and things that are important to them, you find all these incredible similarities and the things that are different are what make things so interesting that you just keep on learning about people.
6: And one way that Antony thinks people can come together is over food.
1: Maura Judkiss covers culture and food for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We talked about TikTok in our episode today, and it turns out that The Post has a lively TikTok account with videos and memes and gags from inside the newsroom. It's funny and it's goofy, but it also gives you a little insight into the everyday workings of The Post and the people who bring you the news. You can find a link at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.